Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of the Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and my co-host, the illustrious jeweler from Amsterdam, Alon Ben Joseph. How'd you like that for a new intro? Wow, you're in a good mood, illustrious. Thank you, buddy. My pleasure. I am in a good mood actually because I finally made it home to Germany after. An extremely enjoyable but incredibly tiring couple of weeks on the road that started with a journey over to London for the Watch Pro Salon, then saw me in Dubai for Dubai Watch Week after one day stopping over back in Germany, and then off to England to chaperone some friends around a football stadium tour of the northwest of England. So I had a couple of days that were technically a holiday, but I was in full tour guide mode, so a little bit worn ragged. You can probably hear from my voice that I... uh, indulged in the British culture a touch while I was away. But great to be back together again. Great to be recording a mailbag episode for the first time in quite some time because we've had the GPHG, we've had our anniversary edition, and of course we've had interviews and articles aplenty. But now we're going to dive into a mailbag, which is, as we always say, but literally mean this time, it's bursting at it seems because the network has grown, it's exploded, the activity is getting Oh, I don't know how to describe it, intense on a daily basis, and we have plenty of questions to answer today. Alon, I will defer the honor to you to choose our very first topic. You are so right that our network is exploding. We've decided to add another sub-channel because we are giving our first collab, the Sherpa, TRTS collab, the OPS, a world tour. So it's going from one country to another wrist to another country to another wrist, literally around the world. So to manage all the data and the flow and the communication, we added another sub-channel and we're thinking of adding more sub-channels. So if you want to join the TRTS network, feel free to DM Rob, David, or I. Send us an email, DM, email, whatever you find easy. We'll send you a link. And with that, you can join the WhatsApp community. First question, I want to Give a shout out to our Belgian friend, Lawrence. He's sent in quite some questions. Um, He's written a mailbag question I might have asked in the past, but if not, logic in reference numbers. With Rolex and AP, there seems to be a clear system, but some brands seem to be random. Is that the case? No pun intended. Or is it just, in brackets, us consumers not being able to decipher a system? So, Rob, do you tend to find symmetry, logic in sequence of numbers normally in in daily life? I tend to look for symmetry in everything because I guess that's how my brain works. But... um it's not always there to be found, of course. There's often a, s- a certain logic behind all of these numerical codes, but there's no consistency between the brands, of course. So, um, yeah, it's uh, a bit of a minefield. But sometimes when you figure out why something is the way it is, it makes sense. And it's almost like speaking another language. You can then read it quite comfortably. Lawrence, technically, almost all brands believe they have a logic in their referencing system. but this is a big, big angry message to the Swiss industry, or maybe all the whole watch industry. Guys and girls, shame on you that you don't give every product an EAN number or UPC number or PIC number. 
For those that don't know what those are, these are universal uh, systems to give unique products and unique code. So worldwide, we can reference them. It's good for Google. It's good for uh, uh, finding, searching, and matching products with information. I want to give both Bulgari and Montblanc a big punishment. They had a unique referencing system, and they switched to the SAP ERP system. And with all the respect, how stupid can you be by using the SAP numbers as a leading reference number for your products? Because SAP numbers, if I'm correct, are only six or seven digit. So your original system of referencing had longer numbers plus letters. And then you switch down to SAP. That means that sometimes you get hits on reference numbers for both brands. But even worse, when you type them in in Google, you'll get totally different products. So I really, really do not understand that. Now, I myself asked you the, I asked you the question about if you seek sequences I usually as a kid always remembered license plate numbers and, and always looked at a cool license numbers in the Netherlands you can't choose your own license plate and you can't create your own license plate in the UK you can I know in Dubai you can so that's always a fun game I always love in the in the UK how they play with letters that function as uh, numbers so when they use in the uh, e for three or etc or in five as an s you know what I mean, Rob, and for our UK listeners. Um, and, and they're paying crazy sums for these license plates. I know they go for five digits, six digits, right? Oh, well, funnily enough, it was so weird you should say this. I was in Dubai the other day, and I learned for the first time about single-digit number plates. I'd never seen one before, didn't know one really existed. So, for example, the car I was driving around in had the number plate six, and it did have a letter as well that's like part of the number plate that isn't really shown on the plate. But these number plates with the single digit on, they sell for like 10 million. Going back to reference numbers of watches. So shame on Bulgari, shame on Montblanc, shame on all of you that use SAP as your leading number. Now, what is super confusing? Let's take Omega, for example. As a retailer, Omega used to be four digits, dot four digits. Then at a certain point, they switched to, I believe, 14 digits which is too long to remember. You know that phone numbers on average are 10 digits. That's basically the max for an average human to remember. So longer than that, it's very difficult to remember that by heart. Now, the annoying thing is when Swatch Group sends invoices, they add the letter of the brand in front of the reference code, but that's not the leading reference code. So when you do the data input into your CMS, your... uh, inventory system, your cash register, your website, it never matches up. So that's confusing. Um, Taking IWC, for example, they always lead with an IW in front of the four digits plus two. The last two digits usually are the combination of dial and case. Um, With Patek, I don't recognize the sequence besides the letter. The letter tells you the alloy, so you have four digits. A letter, that's the alloy of the case. And often there's a hyphen and then four digits, usually, or three digits, it's zero, zero, one. So that's the combination of 
dial with the model and the case reference, usually not strap. Zenit, for example, you could very easily quickly recognize the caliber in there, dial and strap. Um, but a lot of brands are just all over the place. What, what, what do you think? I love Nomus because it's only three digits, so it's easier to remember. But there, is a, there isn't a hardcore sequence in there, is there? Well, it's funny you should say that because Nomos was the brand I was about to bring up because we always use it as an example because we know it so intimately. Not all Nomos reference numbers are six digit. Uh, not all Nomos reference numbers are three digits. As you know, the 1101, for example, the Metro collection has four. Uh, 1101 is the Metro Power Reserve, the original. And that, just so you know, means 11. That's the collection number given to Metro. And 01 was effectively the first one. Now, unfortunately, Nomos doesn't always follow exactly the logical path thereafter. It's not like the second release. It's not like the second release is 02 and the third is 03. Sometimes there are variations of each number. So if you've got like a 701.1 or a 701.2, there are different uh, case back variations. Sometimes it's um, 70. So a 701 is a closed case back club 36 millimeter, right, Alon? Help me if I'm, if I'm, am I wrong? Am I right? Correct, correct, correct. Now, I believe that the open case back version for same watch is actually 703. Also correct. Now, that doesn't directly follow what you'd expect. Seven is the club designation. So that means it's part of the club family or the club campus subfamily. 01, perfect sense, first model. I like the number plate reference that you made, Alon. I think that. There are certain logics that can be taken and, uh, and applied across the board. It doesn't have to be brand focused. I personally like reference numbers that begin with like a three-letter brand identifier code, like BVL for Bulgari or ROL for Rolex or NOM for Nomos. I like that because it's, it's much easier for me to immediately get what brand we're talking about. So for example, if you look at IWC reference numbers or old Rolex reference numbers, sometimes I just couldn't tell the difference from one or the other in a moment. So I like a brand identifier. Then I would like a year. I would like it to be uh, ROL23 to show this is a Rolex produced in 2023. Then a collection number is fine. Obviously, you just have to learn those within a brand if you're a brand fan. And obviously, we can't backdate these reference numbers. We're talking about now and going forward. So discontinued collections will leave gaps in that numbering sequence but that's okay and then a reference number for the piece within that collection which can just be an ascending number therefore you'd be guaranteed uniqueness everything would be identifiable with a little bit of research and knowledge and hopefully a bit more logic to it what do you think i love your idea now i've actually spent a lot of time thinking about building a killer referencing system for our own Ace Fine Jewelry, and I actually purchased EAN numbers to match them. Now, I broke my own rule to create short numbers because you can, because the problem with Nomos is it's so short that it's impossible to work in any system with it because you'll get a hit on everything that's uh, 1101 or 701 or 703 in your databases, let alone in Google. So we have manually added in the ACE universe in all our tech systems, Nomos in front of the number because it was impossible to get hits. So that's also actually something Nomos, I think, should think about. Now, what I did with the ACE Fine Jewelry is 
I used a bit of a Patek style. Every family gets a name. Every model gets a name. And then the family has a four-digit number. And then to create variation in that collection, we made very long numbers. Now, I'm very curious. You were at the roots of not one, but two brands that started from almost zero, right? Talking about Arcanauts, Trump. What did you guys do there with reference numbers? Well, well, this is an, a very, very topical question. And um, to be quite frank, I don't know how candid I should be about it because there's some ideas in the works. But I suppose because this is a real-time show, I'll have to pull back the curtain. And if anyone sees this appearing anywhere else before we execute it for Arcanaut, at least, then you'll know that people are ripping me off. Of course, we know that already, but like <laughs> we'd know it for real this time. So very good question. Um, we actually had the discussion because of the limited nature of Arcanaut's production. Because every model is limited to a maximum amount of pieces per year or limited to a hard number that thereafter cannot be exceeded so when it's a limitation for a single piece like a the upcoming havender model which is the um, mollusk shell composite dial with a purple dial you'll see it on blogs in the next few days so check out that and sign up for the waiting list if you want one that's easy there's 33 pieces being made that's done it's called the havender when it's done it's done with limited editions i actually in some ways prefer one of 33 or one of X amount in case there's like a disaster or a controversy with a particular number, you know, like a, a one. Uh, so number 21 of 33 ends up like this kind of unicorn watch that maybe has like the wrong hands fitted to it, or I don't know, something that you'd hear about from Rolex in the sixties, because then of course you can control the narrative a little better. It's a bit, behind the scenes puppet master you know maybe the evil side of the industry when brands want to do that but it's also a fact of life you know you don't want to do things that are open to too much interpretation you don't want to leave yourself exposed for criticism in any way really that the goal as a brand developer is to try and be on the right side of the narrative always and sometimes individual numbers they can make life harder for a brand than it needs to be conversely with Straum, of course the watches are not individually numbered and we made that decision partly in the case of yen mayan limited edition that we worked on together for fratello because that watch was not limited to a certain number it was limited to a certain time window so it was available for purchase for one week that's the red dial yen mayan version that was inspired by our our adventure to birenberg and we didn't know how many we were going to sell we could have sold 10, we could have sold 10,000. It was somewhere in between. But therefore, the design necessitated an absence of a specific number so we could prepare all of the manufacturing files before we actually went to market. So the watch was being made as it was being sold. And then like we adjusted to make sure we had the right amount because what that means is, of course, you can share a lot more components in a production line. So that's what Straum has done for now. Arcanaut, going back to it, when you've got an annual limit edition, things get a little bit more blurry because especially when you when you produce things like we do, so by hand almost everything is made, at least in part, 
you have to understand that let's say we limit something to 25 pieces in a year and we sell 21 of them we're still gonna over make dials to overlap us into the end of the year to back up for any qc failures to prepare for the oncoming rush of orders and Sometimes you may have a surplus of one component that you were able to have success making by hand and a dearth of another, which means you actually move those limitations around a little bit. And this is okay, in my opinion, when it's when the limitation is predicated on the production capacity of a brand. So it isn't about FOMO. It's not an individual numbering system where people are like, oh, you said there was only going to be 25 and there's actually... 28 in this year and only 21 in the following year it's like yeah of course because we're making things as we can and we can't necessarily predict exactly what's going to be popular or exactly what's going to be successful coming out of a lab so we talked extensively about how to reference this in the serial number the first suggestion was to use a dated system so we would start the serial number with something like 2023 0125 to show number one of 25. It would have worked. It would have been very on the nose. It might have been interesting for the consumer, but I wasn't a huge fan of it because I thought it was too pointed and I thought it tied our hands a little bit. You need every one of those numbers in sequence to make it out to market. And like I said, because of the nature of the dials we're producing, because a lot of the time it's organic material, you can run into trouble behind the scenes and you might have to like number three could be an issue where it goes out and keeps coming back and goes out and keeps coming back. And you're like, okay, this, this is a watch that we maybe need to like forget about and like build a 26 version, for example, and take three out of the equation and, you know, either use the components or something else or just put it down to experience. So I suggested a system of hieroglyphs, um, which I don't believe has ever been done before. It could be anything from emojis to wingdings or dingbats, if you prefer, squares, circles, like PlayStation controller buttons or cards, suits, clubs, spades, diamonds, hearts, slice of pizza, an aubergine, smiley face, crying face. You could have a, a sequence of hieroglyphs, you know, limited to maybe 10 or 20 symbols arranged in well, one, two, three, or four, maybe on the case back, just randomly, you could get millions of combinations out of that many symbols. Everybody's would be unique. It would be a funny thing to talk about with your peers. You say, oh, what's your serial number? Oh, it's pizza, pizza, tree. What's yours? Oh, it's smiling face, teardrop fire. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm smiling and, and I have to jump in. I love it. And it's so on point with the emoji culture we live in and this begs to be launched if you ever do with second second doesn't it yeah that's a good point so we explored it with arcanaut this is where i came up with the idea for arcanaut because i thought it was kind of goofy funny on brand arcanaut we sort of try things a little bit different and it sort of solved the problem uh created a story a positive story around that and it made it would make our record keeping i mean when on earth have you ever heard this? The record keeping is a press release that you can send out to brands and send out to media outlets around the world and say, look, this is what we're doing. No one else has done it before. However, the problem is serial numbers are often generated by 
a machine that is lasering them onto casebacks in either sequence or at random. And so you can't, uh, well, you could build a program to randomly generate combinations of emojis or glyphs or whatever, but it doesn't exist yet. And so the manufacturers that we use in Copenhagen do not have the capacity as yet to do it. Now, could we create an individual laser file for every single watch and manually track that reference image, I guess, in the system? Yeah, it's possible. Huge amount of work for a team of three. Likely not going to happen anytime soon. But I'm going to keep the idea on ice because I like it very much. And if I ever have my own brand at a higher price point with fewer pieces being produced, I'll probably use the same thing. You know, because I think it's really cool. It's really funny. The icons and the emojis, they can change from brand to brand. You know, Patek could use like the Calatrava cross and, um, you know, uh, some reference to Geneva, for example, like the the jet d'eau from uh, Lac Lamain, or I don't know what, like a, a symbol from like an eagle from the crest of Geneva. You, you name it. You know, you can have these things arranged in random orders. You can create massive massive sequences when necessary, huge volume and numbers. So yeah, I'll, I think I'll definitely use it if I ever have my own brand. And I hope that at some point with Arcanaut, maybe even if it's just for a uh, a more uh, limited, slightly higher priced model, we can roll it out and uh, see what the response is. Because I think it's cute. Cute is an understatement. I think it's a brilliant idea. Kudos. And I hope it comes to fruition. Now, before we move on to the next question, I know a lot of brands are listening to our podcast. We have a lot of friends listening to our podcast. Probably we have a lot of listeners that we don't know that they listen to our podcasts that work in the watch industry. Our dear listeners, please do share with us or in the community, or if you don't want to be in the WhatsApp community, just drop us a line on whatever platform you prefer by sharing what you would like the brand to do in context of referencing their products. All right, Rob, which question should we pick now from the mailbag? I have a question from Colm, who, of course, is a very active member of the network that was who was responsible for putting together the incredible competition surrounding the GPHG, which gave us a huge amount of user data to analyze on air. And this question says, and it's relevant because of the uh, sub channel you were talking about in the network previously, Elon, he says, how to handle a friend's watch? Question mark. I would like the point of view and experience of our friendly neighborhood watchmaker and jeweler on this subject. Now, it's relevant because the first TRTS collab, the Sherpa OPS TRTS, has arrived in Alon's hands and has been in Alon's hands for probably about 37 minutes before he packaged it up and sent it off to one of our TRTS network members so that they could test drive the watch that we created together with Martin. Martin Clocker of Sherpa Watchers, of course, another member of the community. Uh, the fascinating thing, the wonderful thing about this is, of course, I think you had it in mind quite early on. I certainly, it was, certainly wasn't my idea to create this almost timeshare system within the group where you could send your watches around, other people could send other watches, and we kind of just expose each other to new things. Of course, it requires a huge amount of trust, and it requires us to be close as a community and understand the risks and responsibilities of such a thing. But now everybody who's a member of the network has the opportunity to take part in this exchange. 
And this question becomes extremely relevant because whoever receives Alon's watch first or next or second or third or fifth or whatever will have to take care of that watch as if it were their own. And I guess that's the crux of my answer. You should treat your watch firstly as if it's your own unless you're extremely laissez-faire and then treat it as if it belongs to the king or the queen or the president of whatever country you happen to live in. Treat it not like a baby because they're machines you know they're able to withstand a fair bit of regular use but just be mindful of the fact that you uh, are wearing something that belongs to someone else something that has emotional value to that person something that probably costs quite a bit of money and just don't put yourself in crazy situations certainly not situations you wouldn't normally put yourself in use your judgment and i just say just have fun Don't stress about it. Don't worry about every little thing. Whatever can be made can be remade. So if you do take a chunk out of someone's watch on a door frame, preferably not an 18 karat gold piece, but if you were to do that, it's awful. It's a shame. But also the responsibility rests with the lender of the piece to understand that sometimes shit happens. So do your best. Don't stress. Don't be a dick. And then keep your fingers crossed. I mean, there's only so much you can do and you're not an evil person if you do put a scratch on a mate's watch. So thank you for that. But I respectfully disagree with the first thing you said. And I'm saying this with a little wink. Normally, treat people like you want to be treated. And that's our hardcore philosophy at Ace Jewelers as a retailer. We welcome everybody like we want to be treated if we are consumers on the retail side of things. But that's how you meant it. But Using, handling other people's watches, do not always by default treat it like it's yours or the way you would want others to treat yours. Because I'm a good example. I don't mind bangs, nicks, scratches, dents, whatever. I love that actually. It adds soul charisma to my watch. Therefore, I have zero problems sending off my watch i tell people wear it bang it scratch it as long as it doesn't affect the chronometer specs of the watch okay now there are a lot of ocd tendencies amongst the hardcore collectors of watches now those are not the ones to go by therefore i said what i just said rob because as a retailer and you've been in after sales you've repaired watches You're sometimes in shock what you see, what people do to their watches. Besides that they're dirty and they don't clean them, uh, 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 there's literally moss growing on them or there are dents and nicks in them or they, they walk around with shattered glasses on their watches for years. I have people come in, they wear a leather strap for three years and they come in and they're angry. Why does this strap last so short? So it's all relative, right? So all the other things you said, I agree with, obviously. Now, for those that haven't watched that Waco video, I think he went a bit overboard on that, a bit of a rampage with his slapping. But what you said, Rob, be respectful. So always ask if you can handle a watch. So if it's not on somebody's wrist, and it's lying on a table, let's say a Red Bar Crew event, for example. Always ask if you can handle watch. Or as as a, as a retailer, what's my fun as a retailer? Every day is different. 
you have always like-minded people in your boutique. But when they put a watch on the plateau in front of me, I never just grab it. I always ask, after they've settled in, they calm down, they had their coffee, tea, whatever they want to drink. And then I show interest in what they're wearing. And then I'll ask if I can handle it. Same analogy I think should apply in a, in a different social uh, scenario or situation you're in. Ask if you can handle it. Never start manipulating the crown or whatever or using the functions on the watch. Ask, always ask. Now, if a buddy or friend or an acquaintance, or for me, an example, lends you a watch, set ground rules. It's like a car. Usually with cars, everybody has insurance, right? So when you dent, nick, or whatever, something happens to a car that you borrow, you're responsible for it. So only borrow watches if you're respo- uh, uh, um, if you have the ability to replace the full value, A, or at least have insurance for that. And if it's damaged, that you can cover the cost. I think that's the bare minimum. And I can go on for hours, but I think we should leave it. I want to get some more questions in. Rob, do you want to add anything to this one? No, I think that that's a great answer, to be honest. Fully rounded. No more to add. I think we gave our opinions pretty clearly there. And um, hopefully the network know how we feel about it. Of course, it's very personal, like we said. So always ask questions and just know what you're dealing with. I am going to rattle through some questions, quick questions and little feedbacks that we have in the mailbag that have been lingering in the mailbag for quite some time. And I really want us to blitz through these ones so that we can address them, but we can also get onto some more uh, expansive topics. First things first, low-hanging fruit, and I hope you have an answer for this. This is from Becca, came in from IG via direct message, and she says, what are you both wearing today? I received two days ago my long-awaited Ming the 37.07 Mosaic. No way. Yeah. So I've ordered that in a, in the spur of the moment. I loved the gradient effect of the stars in there. It's a bit scattered. Uh, I always loved Ming. I've, I've been admiring them for quite some years so far. Uh, my buddy and our TRTS uh, network member, Ruben, had one, and because I helped him source it as a favor, he loaned me his watch for a week. We actually loan each other watches back and forth. He's currently wearing my Dumero, and it got me excited. I find the lugs very intriguing, So, but sometimes a bit thick. The one I have is a hand-wound uh, Schwarz-Etienne caliber, so it's slimmer, thinner, which I didn't expect. I love the depth of the dial. It's actually very modern, and I am actually smitten by it. And I thought I recognized this six-pointed star in there. So I obviously recognize stars of David in them. So that's a little bonus. And I had to verify that with a a diamond loop. So that's a 10 times magnifying. So it's done very subtly. And it's now... The third day on my wrist, um, they, they made a beautiful buckle. And which, which what I found interesting is the leather strap doesn't have uh, loops, so belt holders. Um, and you have to loop through the end bit of your leather strap underneath 
the other side of the shop. So that's an interesting thing. But I'm 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 actually very very much falling in love, and I didn't expect that. So that's a, a, a fun and nice surprise because I I believe I've waited 14 months for this watch. I almost forgot about it. So what are you wearing, Rob? Well, maybe surprisingly, unsurprisingly, I'm wearing the Bulgari Serpenti Turbogas with a black dial, diamond bezel, rose gold, and steel uh, snake segments. <laughs> Links. I don't know what to call them. Uh, you know what I mean. It's uh, the bicolor version with a little red cabochon in the crown. It's a gorgeous watch that Bulgari was kind enough to loan to me because I am obsessed with the Serpenti and believe that well, as you know, I've been saying to Antoine for years that there should be a men's version. And since having this watch on my wrist and having experienced it firsthand, I have refined the design I've been working on to propose to him for a men's version. And I've added two elements that weren't there before as a result of me having worn this watch. And I think I'm working with a sketch artist now to get it all, all drawn up properly so I can send it to Antoine and Fabrizio and say, hey, guys. Come on, take a look at this. Tell me this isn't cool. Tell me that this couldn't or wouldn't be worn by not every kind of man. That's fine. Not every watch has to be for every kind of man, but some men who previously would be turned off by the Serpenti and also some women. Like the watch I'm designing, it's darker, it's moodier, it uses more masculine materials. It calls upon an existing Bulgari range that's very popular with men. It uses an, a novel component to improve its overall wearability and sleekness, but it's not just a man's watch. It's just an awesome piece of treasure because that's what the Bulgari Serpenti is to me. It is the best thing that you could leave behind from humanity to show aliens what kind of creatures we were. I think if somebody found a fully bejeweled stone set Bulgari Serpenti buried in the dust of uh, the wasteland that exists beyond all of us, they would be like, these guys... They were something worthwhile. That's just my opinion. Anyway, Quartz Watch, it's about 13,000 euros, I think, ballpark. Um, probably would take the all gold one, yellow gold, having worn it for having worn this one for a while. But it's been an absolute revelation. I wore it to the Watch Pro Salon in the evening, uh, at the evening events, and I received quite some positive comments. I think, uh, there was a lot of, I won't say it on air, but good energy that came from a hirsute man like myself wearing a watch of this nature. So thanks for the question, Becca. Very much appreciated because we don't do wrist checks uh, as standards. Maybe we should, but I think it's you know pretty common. So we try and stay off the beaten track. Okay. This is a comment that came in from Christopher. Didrikson, our most dedicated fan. And this is uh, a long time past. We were talking about QC failures and what it requires to be a QC failure. So a quality control failure as a watch is passing through the final checks before it goes back out to a customer following either a service or initial assembly. And Chris, who's a watchmaker up in Sweden, he says, uh, as a response to Moritz, who's a watchmaker here in Germany for Langer, um, as a, as a response to Moritz's question regarding dust, during the exams that Chris sat last year, the teachers took a look at the watch from 20 centimeters away. And if they can't see dust with the bare eye, it's considered good to go. 
customers should have the same references. Now, that's a good point. Customers should probably be informed as to what the QC standards of every brand are. Because if we take, for example, Moritz's company as an example, they are famous at Langer for assembling all their watches twice. So they assemble them once, they check everything's working, adjust all the end shakes as necessary on the jewels, make sure that all of the pivots are straight and everything's running absolutely perfectly. Then they disassemble it, clean everything again, and do a final assembly. Now that's massively different from, say, Citizen Watch Company. Now, of course, the price points reflect the difference in quality, but maybe that should be something customers know about more transparently. What do you think about that, Alan? So it's interesting. Should consumers therefore accept that rule of thumb that he's referring to depends on the price level i think um if you're taking the reference of lange Söhne, it's actually very cool that they pushed that message very hard and for many years in their marketing endeavors because i don't even think any brand does that do they rob i'm racking my brain to my knowledge they're the only one um I, I, I'm, I'd guess that some certainly individual watchmakers within brands prefer to do the same thing for absolute cleanliness and absolute quality. And I'd expect it maybe of a brand like Laurent Ferrier or F.B. Jean, for example. But I don't think anyone really hammers the communication like Langer does. And it's become a bit of a Langer thing. So it's a bit too late for another brand to jump on that bandwagon. I think you should make it a sliding skill, meaning... Is it okay, this rule for a watch below a thousand euros? Maybe. But I had many cases, for example, that there were a lot of imperfections with two-door watches. So let's say on average 2K to 4, 5K. And consumers are really dismayed. So they could even see it further than 20 centimeters. Without a loop, if you really keep it close, and with a loop, it's either a hair or rather big dust particle. They were really dismayed. Maybe Tudor is not the right example because a lot of people think that because it has the same mother company as the Rolex brand, that it has the same QC and even worse analogy, the same quality, which it doesn't. And today, only the financial power is the same for Rolex and Tudor, but all the rest is different. They're different calibers, different production facilities, different management, different employees. Everything is different. So you can't use or manage your expectations like you would with a Rolex. But if you compare the same price bracket and different brands, then still... I agree with the consumers that they're dismayed for the price bracket of 3 to 5K. Well, what do you think of that, Rob, with my new analogy? Yeah, I think that's pretty sound. I think uh, it's important for customers to be made aware of what product they're buying and what standards they can expect. Of course, that's not always an easy thing to communicate positively unless it's a strength. And the reason why Langer pushes it so hard is because it's a massive strength and it's something they're willing to hang their hats on. Of course, it's a volume consideration, it's a pricing consideration, it's an ability consideration. All those things are beyond Tudor, really. That's a good example, though, in terms of a mass-produced, and I say this 
tongue-in-cheek luxury product. It's an expensive product. But the Tudor watches, they are what they are. You need to know that and you need to not be too disappointed if they do fall foul of high expectations. That's part of the reason why I'm not so interested in them, to be honest. But anyway, besides the point, I think you answered it very well. Um, Let's move on to another question. If the audience has any more feedback regarding this, their feelings uh, around QC and what the level should be, then please just start a conversation in the network and we'll address it again in a future episode. Okay, quick one. Our friend Walter from Amsterdam, he says, what did you get in this year's Geneva auctions? Did you buy anything, Alon? Because I did not. I am not a auction buyer. Why? Don't know. I've The only thing I've ever bought in a physical auction is real estate. And a digital auction is eBay. Hmm. And... <laughs> And that's watches, obviously. Mm. Um, but that's less exciting. So the fun of auctioning is is the momentum, the tension, the excitement, the fear of losing a winning bid, the fear of being outbid. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know why, actually. Maybe I'm not that of a uh, uh, special buyer because... Today in the physical vintage auctions or the pre-owned auctions or the unique pieces, it's always record-breaking, and I'm not a record-breaking payer. Fair enough. There we go. Uh, I also don't really have the means to partake in major auctions. I have won a few pieces on eBay in the past, of course, and I think the most recent thing I bought was probably a Hublot service watch, which Alan and I both bought really for a bit of fun i don't know if you still got yours but i sold mine almost immediately afterwards because i was like yeah it's cool it's funny i have a hublot i like the fact i've owned a hublot as much of a joke as that is but i sold it almost immediately afterwards for about what i paid for it a little bit more actually yeah so i've i've worn it uh, twice for the fun of it we bought it as a running gag because uh david loves hublot so much uh, the funny thing is in the um, Dutch chapter of Red Bar Crew, we did a test run with a internal swap meet, so an internal sales event. Um, what we did is in the WhatsApp community for Red Bar Crew Amsterdam, we had to announce what we are selling to each other. That we, well, What are we bringing to the actual evening? Uh, we had to list pictures, price, um, basically no haggling and stuff. So I put up five watches that um, I was letting go of my private collection at the same price that I paid for it, full transparency. So my Hublot actually got a lot of uh, bids, but I didn't make it an auction. So it was first dips. So the first one that responded was his. And the, the cool stuff, he also bought it just as a running gag with his mates. And he sold it for the same price again to another Red Bar crew member. So it lives amongst our Red Bar community. So that's cool. It has a good home. It does indeed. Thank goodness for that. Okay, next question on the list. This is from Marcus. Came in via email. Now, it's regarding the Nomos Glassiter Forum. He heard we had been there to visit. And he wanted to know, what was it like? 
And what can we tell him about the novelties? Now, he asked this question before all of them were released, which is why we unfortunately had to hold back from answering it because we'd love to break embargoes, as I do occasionally because of my idiocy and apathy for them and interest in the watchers and absolute burning passion for the brands. So please forgive me. But in this case, we had our heads screwed on. We knew what the dates were exactly, and we kept our mouths shut. We talked about the initial club releases, the mid-sized club sport models with the neomatic calibers and the beautiful bracelets and the autumnal hued dials. And we, I think, touched upon at one point the 33mm metros. But let's talk a little bit about those metros and a little bit about the tangenta that came thereafter. And just your immediate takeaways, what you think of the pieces, and then we'll answer one more question and wrap up the show for today. Go ahead. So thank you so much, Marcus. Since we have recorded those episodes, so I'm going to go in reverse order. The highlight for me was the Tangente Neomatic in gold, celebrating again the 175th anniversary of watchmaking in Glashütte. Spectacular piece. Love, love, love it. Then, for me, I was actually very excited about the revamping of the original club, so the 701 and the 703, whom have the reference today to make it full circle this episode, talking about reference numbers. 701.1 and the 703.1. So I love what they've done there. 11 points of improvement, if I recollect correctly, and you can hardly notice them. So it's very cool, cool exercise in evolution of iconic designs. There I use the term iconic, which we've also discussed on there. Now, what are being delivered as we speak, since full disclosure, we are Nomos retailers at Ace Jewelers. The 39 millimeter versions of the club sports on steel bracelets in three beautiful dial colors um, which they called indian summer if i remember correctly rob help me out here yeah that was the theme i think yeah the theme so it was a bit tobacco a bit copper ish and i don't even remember what they called the third color so there were three shades of autumn color vibes Lovely, love them. Well done, Nomos. Important case size. Now they are, I believe, two or two more models on the embargo. So I'll shut up. And Nomos never forgets the smaller wrists. We don't want to talk about male or female. So those that are in favor of smaller case sizes, Metro, thirty-three millimeters in three beautiful colors. And they were, again, designed together with Brown, the designer. That's Mark. Mark Brown. Very well done. He wasn't there physically, but he did record a video which was shown there. And it's lovely to hear the philosophy behind designs. That's what I love. I love designers. I love to hear why they design what they design. So... Those were my highlights. Rob, what, what were yours and what do you want to add? Yeah, the highlights for me are pretty straightforward. The gold tangenta, the Bauhaus design dial with the rose gold chapter ring and sub dial. It's a heavenly piece. 
possibly the greatest Tangenta ever made, which is a huge statement to make because the 35 is an icon of the industry and its design roots are from many, many years. Previously in Glasseter, there was a Langer that looked very much like it in the early days. If people don't realize, Nomos reestablished that style and made it their own. I adore that piece. It's limited to 175 pieces worldwide because they're still banging the drum for the 175th anniversary of watchmaking, even though we're now at the 178th anniversary of watchmaking in Glasseter since the foundation of Langer and Zunner by Ferdinand Adolf Langer in 1845. Now, that's a bit annoying for me because I'd like them to make three extra pieces so me, you, and David could have one for ourselves. But unfortunately, 175 is a much more appealing number and easier to communicate via the press. So that was a massive, massive highlight. I, I do own a Tangenta that I, I was given after a year's service in Normos, but I gave it to my mom a few years back and she wears it daily. It looks great on her wrist. It never really was the watch for me, but my girlfriend wears one as well. I uh, would like to have this gold one in my collection, but I'm sure all 175 will go to good homes. The 33mm red-ish dial Metro is a gorgeous use of color. It's like a brick red dial, and then I would say electric coral dots around the outside, which is a wonderful uh, chromatic harmony. I think it's a, a brilliant addition to the line. Too small for my wrist, but I'm sure it will find plenty of happy wrists to call home. Lastly, the watch that I'm most likely to buy is the revamped 701.1 closed case back all the way for this one. It's just a classic. The updates to the watch, as Alan said, were very subtle, but also very, very smart. It is different when you lay them side by side. It's more modern. It's a little edgier. It's slightly maturer design, I would say, but I think a really great effort to bring back a classic without stepping on the toes of those that had the original. So, different enough, not too different, a welcome return and well done. So yeah, I think in terms of buying the 701.1 or 0.3, if you need to see the Alpha Caliber through the open case back is a great, great choice. I assume all of the Tangenta 35s are spoken for already. And if you are of the more slender wrist, then the Metro 33 is great. And my pick of the bunch would be the red dial. Last question for the day and I've been inspired by what's on your wrist. So thanks, Becca. We had a question come in from Gary, of course, one of the most active members of the network. And his question is quite simply, Ming, has the bubble burst? Discuss. <sighs> I'm actually wearing a Ming right now. Yep. Um, I, I find this a very tricky question. So since COVID, We've seen second-hand market prices go crazy. I'm not talking about auctions. I'm not talking about those rare watches that, that are so rare and limited, either because they're old and don't exist anymore or hardly were made, or modern watches that are made in limited productions or PS uniques, so unique pieces. Uh, uh, let's not even talk about the Nautilus or the Royal Oak. I mean, everything went crazy, even Nomos had on the full range 10 months waiting list. And that caused even some Nomos models to sell a little bit above retail price. Now, the same happened for Ming. Ming is a D2C brand, a direct-to-consumer brand. So I believe that since COVID, 
almost every model they made sold out rather quickly and was resold above list. But correct me if I'm wrong, I don't really track those things. I ordered mine because I love it. I didn't buy it as a retailer. I didn't buy it to flip it. And I assumed I would lose money on it if I ha- would have not liked the watch or would not have fallen in love with it or got bored with it after a while. And that's okay for me because the experience of owning and wearing it is worth money to me as a collector. Now, apparently, the pricing came down on Ming. They, their runs of new models are selling out less quick or not completely. That obviously reflects in secondary market pricing. But somebody saw that I posted my Ming that it arrived on the same day and said, will you sell it to me? And then I, I I immediately said no, but then I got curious. If I was a to sell it, how much should I sell it for? And I saw that my Ming was going above list a little bit. And obviously on Chrono24, there were many listings. I believe some of them were flippers. And the lowest price offered was at the price paid for it. So retail was by coincidence another Dutch collector. And he wrote in the commentary letting go of it, ordered it over a year ago. I stopped being a watch collector, letting go of all my watches. So so that created a baseline. Does that mean that the bubble is burst? I find it rather impressive that they still hold their value. So it's all relative, isn't it? What's your take on it, Rob? Well, I, like you, have just recently become a Ming owner and I put my money down 50% non-refundable deposit for the GMT guilt version and that i think i put that money down maybe in 2022 late 2022 the watch arrived earlier this year balance was due upon delivery and by the time it rolled around i'd already kind of lost interest i thought the dial was so gorgeous the color combination was so wonderful i'd never had a ming and i always wanted a ming not because of the hype but because i liked the lugs and i thought it was an interesting up-and-coming brand and also was very much fond of the work that they do on the movements with Schwarz Etienne, even for the basic models, like that GMT. So I bought it, I got it, I opened it, I took a one look at it, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the form of the case. I didn't like how boxy it was. It surprised me very much. Straps I thought were beautiful, and you can do a lot with the straps that they provide in terms of color combinations with the dial. Execution was great. It wasn't Ming's fault that I didn't like it as much as I'd hoped I would when it arrived. and could have hit my wrist, but I've never worn it. I know I know Gary actually who asked the question felt a similar disinterest to his GMT when he received it. I think he got the Kyoto one, the silverish, silver and green one rather than the green and gold like mine, I think. Don't quote me on that. And I know that he eventually managed to form a bond with it. He tried it on different straps. That was it. He didn't like the standard straps. He flipped it onto some aftermarket ones, and then he really connected to it, and then he decided it was a decent watch for him. I honestly would have sold it immediately for what I paid for it. I I didn't buy it to flip it. I bought it to own it, but I got it, and I didn't like it, and I still don't like it, and I've never worn it, and it's in my box, in its box, should I say, still, in the packaging in which it came squirreled away in my office. 
I actually forgot I had it. And I was cleaning out the other day and I came across the packaging. I was like, what is this thing? And I was like, oh, it's a brand new luxury watch that I've just completely forgotten about, which is a nice position to be in. But to be quite frank, there was no point in me thinking about it because as soon as I got it, I looked online and was like, okay, this needs to go. I'm sure I'll be able to move it for you know, at least what I paid for it or something like that. And that was only my intention. And I saw to my horror that there was about 30 of the same model online dotted around retail. Most people were asking for more than retail. Some people were asking for retail and a little below in some cases. And that might be a sort of currency thing that stung me in the butt. But I was, uh, yeah, a little disheartened to see that the interest in Ming had dropped off a cliff so much so that you couldn't even buy a limited model at retail or below, or you couldn't even sell a limited model at retail or below whenever you wanted to. And it was maybe maybe the best example thus far of the fallout of the COVID era. Because Ming was a perfectly timed darling of the watch industry. Ming's a great designer, a great businessman, but no way in hell could he have predicted the trajectory of that company thanks to the climate socially, politically, around the world. It just wasn't possible to know that that was going to come. The brand got in way before the pandemic. It became a firm favorite of an underground community. They made good quality, nicely designed watches at a fair price, cleverly marketed, correctly limited, and well-delivered. And then, obviously, for those COVID years, no independent brand could do any wrong. Everything would sell and could be sold again immediately thereafter for two or three times the price occasionally. Everything was nuts. And obviously, they pushed it as far as they could. Then there were a couple of problems, maybe a unnecessary or yeah, unnecessary is a word. I was going to say misguided, but actually unnecessary is a better word. Collaboration with William Massina. Nice watch, fine. But then the QC issues, the communication was an absolute disaster and people got a little bit turned off from the brand. This happened to coincide with us slowly exiting the pandemic. And even towards the end of the pandemic, there'd been a little bit more focus on just the mainstream bankable brands like the Rolexes, like your... Patek Philippe's, for example, your FP Jeans, the APs, the things that you can guarantee getting your money back on. And all of this was a perfect storm that coincided just after the release and the money going down on the GMT. And that means that a lot of people obviously ordered the GMT to flip it. And they were ending, and they ended up in a situation where they had a watch that maybe they no longer actually wanted or maybe they never wanted it. They just bought it because it was, they thought, currency, that they could exchange it for a higher value than what they paid for. And that's okay in its own sense, but, and that's not great at any, and that's not a great thing, obviously, because that's not what we want in the watch collecting community. It doesn't promote positive vibes. It doesn't allow space for people to really grow in the community patiently and steadily and accrue the watches that they really, really feel connected to over time after a great deal of thought, consideration, and discussion with fellow watch lovers. It creates a toxic and uh, stressful environment for collectors, new and old. And that's not what a hobby should be. A hobby should be the opposite. And 
The moment Ming ceased to be a true hobbyist brand that provided joy and interest and became something that only flippers really focused on in the hope they would make a quick buck is the moment that perhaps it lost a little bit of its goodwill currency. Now, I do believe that can be reclaimed because I do believe that the watch brand was popular for the right reasons in the early days. Absolutely do I believe that, yes. And I think the model that Alon is wearing is absolutely gorgeous. And I think that in time, some of these models, that one included, will be regarded as a classic. It will, again, sell for more than retail quite comfortably years after the fact. In the meantime, I think Ming needs to pump the brakes a little bit, focus on reconnecting with its community, go back to its roots a little more, appreciate that they've had stunning success, that they've become a brand. They are a brand. They're not a micro brand. They're barely even a small independent. They're a modern success story. They're one of the best endeavors of the last five, 10 years. And that's just the truth. They should be very proud of themselves for that. They've been constantly creative. They've tried new things. They've pushed the game with the movements, working with Schwarz Etienne. You know, other brands that have tried to capitalize on their five-year window of cool, like Seven Friday, have done so well, but haven't necessarily been able to evolve like Ming did from a product perspective. Now, Ming's done well on the product side of things. The next challenge is, can it do the same reputationally? And can it evolve its character well enough to maintain its popularity within the watch community? Okay, fun episode, good mailbag. Very much enjoyed it. We buzzed through more questions than usual because we were a bit stricter on ourselves. And next time we hope to do the same because the mailbag episodes are, it would seem, what the community enjoys the most. So as we go forward, we will try and do more of those, fewer interviews, and a nice peppering of articles and article analysis just to season things up a little. If you'd like to get in touch with your questions, you can do so by contacting us via Instagram at therealtime.show or via our personal accounts, either at R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S for me, at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H for Alon, or D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R for David. You can contact Alon or I via our emails, that's Rob or Alon at therealtime.show, or via the contact form on the website, www.therealtime.show. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share the podcast. Let us know what you think, and check in next week when we're going to be back with more top-quality watch content. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. Keep on ticking.